0: And again, as we enter into this particular text, which we look at this morning, we must keep this in mind. Okay, we ask ourselves, why do we believe? Okay, why do you believe? Why have you entrusted yourself fully and completely to the work and worth of Christ? And, and quite simply, beloved, it's because you've been graced to do so. You've been graced... To believe. Now we believe this, we say this, when we enter into texts like this, Romans 9, sometimes we begin to think otherwise. So if you would please open to the ninth chapter of Romans and we will continue our study there beginning uh, actually in verse 14. We'll look at verses 17 to 24 we have to go back to verse 14. Um, let me say to any and all who are w- uh, visiting this morning, um, we're delighted to have you with us. And uh, you must know at the outset, um, we teach through the whole Bible. We, we teach verse by verse. We read it. We explain it. That's what biblical exposition is. I, I don't think it should be breezed over. Um, it is essential for God's people to really know what the word means by what it says. So it takes time to do that. And as we... Um, work our way through this, there's some parts of this text in particular that are incredibly offensive to our human nature. But we will not apologize for God, and we will persevere as we find ourselves here in Romans 9. Amen? Okay, so let me begin in reading in verse 14. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, please. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we now ask, as we are completely dependent upon you to learn, to know, and to grow, uh, I ask that you would graciously provide me the ability to declare this text by way of explaining this text Not in my strength, not in my power, but by the power of your Spirit. And also, Lord, by the same Spirit, you would give your people ears to hear, hearts to understand, and a desire to actually embrace this and love this and know that our confidence is entirely, is completely in you. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, We've been... Um, in the deep end of the pool, doctrinally speaking, um, over the past few weeks. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul here teaches the church at Rome in rhetorical form. That is, he raises a series of questions and then he provides the answer. Now, we're immersed in a section of Scripture that is often ignored by many Christians, even some pastors. That is, of course, Romans 9, with regard to the doctrine of divine election. Now, today, this deep water, for some, becomes very turbulent water. In that, we move now into studying what's known as the doctrine of reprobation. Where God chooses some and not others, that is, he softens some to, to belief, whereas he hardens others in unbelief. Now, in order to rightly understand Scripture, beloved, we must rightly understand God's character. Our standard in considering God and how he operates is established and preserved by God, not man. We would all say amen to that on the surface. Amen? (laughs) Amen. When we read some of the hard teachings of Scripture, many many times believers will say, I can't love a God like that. Have you ever heard that? When it comes to Romans 9 and, and texts such as Romans 9, well, I can't love a God like that. Well, that is to say, that you actually detest some of the very characteristics of God. That's all that means at the end of the day. God's character is multifaceted. Okay, This morning, we'll simply consider two aspects of God's character. The first aspect of God's character we see all throughout Scripture is that He is a God of justice. He is a God of justice. As descendants of Adam, as we all are, fallen human beings, we are guilty, we are sinners, we are rebellious, and we all equally deserve just punishment. Amen? As fallen creatures, we have no desire to fellowship with the creator of the universe. No desire whatsoever. He is holy. He is just. Mankind is fallen. Mankind is sinful. Mankind is corrupt. And left to himself will choose to follow the God of this world and their father, the devil, as Jesus said. God would have been perfectly just, would he not? To have left all of mankind in their sin and their corruption. Would he have been just? Absolutely. He would have been just. He is a just God. In other words, he is under no obligation whatsoever to provide salvation for anyone. It's in this context... That is the justice of God that the Bible sets forth the doctrine of unconditional election for which we've been studying. Leading to a second aspect of God's character and that is the characteristic of his mercy for for which we praise him. That's why we're here. It's only because of his mercy. Noah experienced God's mercy. The mercy of God when he and his family were saved and in an ark from the flood. Mercy was shown to Noah. Lot, by God's mercy, was literally dragged out of Sodom before destruction. Remember he was lollygagging along? God sends in angels, grabs him by the hand, and they reel him out of there. That's mercy. But having escaped the judgment of God... Noah, Lot, or anyone else for that matter, were no less deserving of the same punishment. We all say? Amen Amen to that. We agree with that. Had they relied upon the justice of God, they too would have been destroyed by God. but instead they were recipients of God's unmerited, unwarranted favor and mercy. In Christ, you are recipients of God's unmerited, unwarranted favor, grace, and mercy alone. Period. End of story. Amen? Good day. (sighs) You can go home now. This is it. This is the only reason... Scripture shows us that God has chosen to save some and not others. All of whom deserve the same thing. That is the justice of God. As soon as we say that salvation comes from God's sovereign mercy alone, the first thing people say is, that's not fair. This is exactly what Paul anticipates. Paul knows this. He expects people to say this. Which, by the way, only confirms that he is indeed teaching on the doctrine of election in Romans 9. Okay? Super clear? And let me say at the outset, beloved, if your objection is that election isn't fair, you have to know that what you're objecting to is what the Bible says actually teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. This is not our doctrine. This isn't what you would say is reform doctrine. Of reform. This is biblical truth. This is the Bible. So, moving past any base protest to the obvious, we naturally begin to ask, why? Why does he choose some? Why does he pass over others? Why does he soften some to belief and harden others in unbelief? Why? Well, three things to keep in mind as we work our way through this, beloved. Number one, he's God. He is God. Okay, number two, no one being dealt with by God according to his justice is undeserving. Everyone equally deserves the same thing. We all deserve hell. Is what we deserve. At the end of the day, this is what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. That's all we've earned. That's all sin earns is death. Sin, not bet by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, earns the second death eternal separation from God and His mercy, only to face His everlasting punishment. And number three, we must remember that God always acts justly. He always acts righteously. Okay? Verse 14, Paul raised the question, is there injustice or unrighteousness with God? He says here, perish the thought. (laughs) By no means. God makes clear, beloved, that God will say, he will stand he will say, I owe compassion and mercy to no one. God owes mercy and compassion to no person. He doesn't owe compassion to any person. Last time we looked at verse 15, where Paul cites Exodus 33, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will exertion, but on God who has mercy, who shows mercy. Now, it's very important that we understand the context of, of that which Paul is citing for us, okay? Now now look at this. It's, it's, it's Exodus 33, and it begins in verse 18. The context is when Moses comes to God, and he says, show me your glory, okay? Now notice this. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So, God answers Moses' prayer in that the God of glory, in the glory of God, shows that glory, shows a speck of that glory by proclaiming his name. The name of God is being declared, and when he wants to declare his name, He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. So that they'll know his name. So that they'll know him. Therefore, the freedom in sovereignty of God in showing mercy on whom he wills is proclaiming his name to whom he wills more than anything else. Proclaiming his name to whom he wills the very essence of what it means to be God. God. Paul goes on to say, no one wills their way into salvation in verse 16. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has what? Mercy. See, it's not by human will. We are retrieved by God for God. We're lost sheep that he seeks and finds. He's determined to find him, and he goes out and he gets them, And he brings him into the fold. You were not a goat who became a sheep, you were a lost sheep that was brought back to the fold according to his sovereign purpose. Goats don't become sheep. Goats are goats, sheeps are sheep. This is where we come to understand Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ, the word of God, okay? One comes to faith only by, here it is, effectually hearing the word of God, that is the message about Christ. And that message goes out through many a pulpit throughout this town. There's many faithful pulpits in this town. They proclaim this truth. There's many faithful pulpits around the world. There's many unfaithful pulpits, but in the midst, there's always the faithful. There's always the remnant. And there's people, God's people such as yourselves, who go out and proclaim the same same truth. It's the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ, the word of God. Now, with that being said, let me draw your attention to a text that, that, that Bobby read earlier this morning, Isaiah 55. Okay? You read through this, one of my favorite texts. In uh, the prophet, he says, as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, in verse 10. And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Okay, the rain comes down. It it brings forth... Um, you know, that you have seed of the sower, bread to the eater, it provides that, it nourishes that, it waters that. So just as that takes place, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, now, question. Let's just say, if someone sits under the word of God where it's faithfully preached... Year after year, they go through the motions, they've heard the gospel, the gospel is clearly proclaimed, the whole counsel of God is taught, they sit there, they listen, they perhaps grow up in or around the church, they memorize scripture, they partake of the Lord's table, and one day they turn out to be apostate, meaning they they walk away from the connection to the church, and and they they, uh, recant faith in Christ alone. And they believe some other weird Eastern mystic type of religion. They're exposed uh, as an unbeliever. Okay, question. Has God's word returned void? Did God's word accomplish that which he purposed from his mouth? Has it succeeded in the thing for which he sent it? Pe- Some people think this means unconditionally that every word that goes forth from God will, will, will transform the pagan lost, such as you know, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the pagan um, people that weren't under covenant with God, Gentiles. When we talk about evangelism, Do we immediately think that the ultimate goal of evangelism or proclaiming the gospel is purely for the sake of people getting saved? That's always my hope. Amen? That's always our hope. But when it comes to God's word being preached, beloved, very important, when the gospel is being heralded, more than just one purpose is being accomplished. But all through it, God is being glorified. Two things occur when the word of God is preached. And both bring glory to God. Number one is that God is glorified through His grace and mercy in saving His elect. Number one... God is glorified through his grace and mercy in saving his elect. Number two is that God is glorified through his justice and punishment in hardening the non-elect. Hard to understand? No. Hard to accept? Hard to swallow? Hard to digest? Perhaps. It's sometime it is for all of us. It's not hard to understand. That's reprobation. The name given to God's eternal decision regarding sinners he has not chosen. Now, in not choosing them for eternal life in Christ, he has undoubtedly, if he's God, determined not to change them. All right? What happened to you when you heard the gospel the day that you actually embraced Christ? You were changed. Right? And you didn't change yourself. He did. But here we read that he's determined to harden them, that is, in their already sinful condition. Okay, There's no escaping this fact. Some people just say, yeah, that's just the Romans 9 stuff, that's why they pass over it. This isn't just Romans 9 stuff, beloved. Proverbs 16:4, "The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble." In John chapter 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, that is Jesus performing miracle after miracle, they still did not believe in him. Why? Verse 38 so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? End result, verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. Not would not. They already would not. Now they could not. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. John 13, 18, in the upper room with the 12 disciples. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father before his departure. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of what? Destruction. Destruction, That the scripture might be fulfilled. 1 Peter 2, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock and a fence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jude 4, false teachers, false apostles, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who preferred the grace of our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Hard to understand? No. Hard to accept? Perhaps. Paul provides a vivid illustration of this truth right here in Romans 9, quoting Exodus 9 and verse 16, right here in Romans 9, verse 17. So if you look back at Romans. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay, now, beloved, unless he predestinates everyone to salvation, unless he elects every single person to eternal life, then we have to deal with the other side of election. Okay, we know he doesn't save everybody. So we must deal with this other side. That is divine reprobation. We can't leave it alone. We have to look at it. Now, some teach that predestination is purely single. They'll argue that God only decrees certain individuals to be saved, not decreeing to consign anyone in unbelieving hardness. That's what they argue. But according to what we just read, right, there is undoubtedly a flip side to election. Okay? Okay? working our way through this because we must deal with this. This is how we grow to more greatly be thankful and appreciative for the salvation we do have. What's the purpose in learning about divine reprobation, for goodness sake? Because you're not reprobate. That's why. Jesus received all of the justice of God in your place. You've received nothing but mercy. That's why. That's not fair. No, it's not. Because if God were fair, you would not receive his mercy either. That's why it's called mercy. Mercy. Not getting what you do deserve, grace, getting what you don't deserve. Exodus 7. God said to Moses, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go to this, out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now when we go read the account of the ten glorious plagues of God that befell that, that area and those people, we see that God showed himself in a mighty way and Pharaoh hardened his heart. God showed himself in a mighty way, God hardened his heart. Pharaoh showed him, God showed himself in a mighty way, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, Pharaoh God, Pharaoh God. Right? Was Pharaoh involved in this? Yes. Was God involved in this? Yes. Yes. So what are we to make of this? They're both involved. So the question is this. How does God harden? Is it by human permission? Is it by human permission or divine decision? Scripture shows us quite clearly that God's word and his spirit do a consistent work in both mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. In Revelation 22 and verse 11, what do we read? Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Did God choose you because you're holy? Oh, No. Ephesians 1, he chose you to make you holy, right? Because if you were holy, when you get to heaven, you can say, Jesus, move over. Now there's two of us, but you can't. God's grace transforms And affirms some on the course of eternal security, while at the same time his justice calcifies others on the road to destruction. Hard to understand? No. Hard to accept? Perhaps. We want to grow out of the perhaps. Verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Notice, Paul does not backpedal here. He doesn't attempt to rearrange doctrine after saying that God hardened Pharaoh. He anticipates another objection. He anticipates that someone will say, how then can God determine some as being guilty of resisting him if he's the one who hardens them in order to resist him? Right? Right? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? The question is, God, how could you hold someone accountable to a hard heart if they're only working out a particular disposition that you have fueled in the first place? That's what we do, right? And yet again, Paul still does not backpedal. He doesn't attempt to soften the blow, nor does he begin to attempt to apologize for God. He doesn't back up and say, I don't really mean, you know, predestination means that he, he, he predetermines to solidify some in their hardened unbelief. I'm not saying that, uh, 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 no. He doesn't do that. He doesn't avoid the question. He doesn't hit the default button of an Arminian theology either. Instead, in answer to the objection in verse 19, Paul says, just to set the record straight. Notice, (laughs) verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Calling all objectors to remember their form, beloved. What is our form? Finite humanity under the rule and reign of an infinite, sovereign, almighty God. Amen? Remember your form, people, he says. Remember who you are, which should absolutely shut the mouth of any and all protesting to the sovereign decrees of God. It should, but it often doesn't. God is saying, hey, creature, who are you to answer back to sovereign creator? God is God, you're not. That's easy to understand. Hard to stomach, perhaps. This is not unlike Job putting his hand over his mouth. Do you remember this? After all of this bad counsel and then Job cursing the day of his birth and all of this, and and God says, let me inquire of you, Job. Uh, Where were you again When, when I set the universe into order? Where were you? And after God inquires of him for a couple chapters, Job says in Job 40, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. (laughs) Humbling? It should be. It should be. So, Paul continues his argument now by way of illustration. Notice, very, very familiar metaphor to first century Christians. And he says, verse 20, well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another vessel for dishonorable use? Paul's audience knew pottery, no doubt and that the potter was sovereign over the clay. So he forms, if he wants, a cup for honorable use, a drinking vessel for a prince, if he so chooses. While at the same time, he can choose to make a vessel for dishonorable use, and that is to to make something to carry out waste, if you get the picture. And if the potter has that right, which he does... Does not God have the same right to do with his creatures as he sees fit? That's, th- that's the argument. That's the illustration. Beloved, let me say this is before we move on. If you allow your unchecked emotions to get in the way of this truth, you will never answer Paul's question in verses 20 and 21 correctly. If you let your unchecked emotions get in the way, you'll never answer his questions biblically. You've got to come up with something else. The plain objection that people have to election as you think through these things is this. If you say that God chooses some, then that inherently means that he must pass over others, leaving them in hardened unbelief. That's not fair. That's precisely what the Bible teaches. It's crystal clear. And, beloved, the Bible totally destroys human autonomy. That is, the Bible, when taught correctly, completely destroys any idea that man is an absolute self-determined control of his life, a free will agent, if you will, to either decide for God or not. It destroys it. Because if we had absolute control of our own hearts, you could not be saved. Okay? If you had absolute control over your own heart, okay, you couldn't be saved. Because salvation is a transformation of what? The heart. That is the mind. How you think. How you think of God. How you think of yourself as a sinner. How you think of holiness. How you think of depravity. Without a transformation of mind, you would willfully reject him. Yeah? That's why it takes the Holy Spirit to save. It takes A new life, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom, he cannot perceive it, he cannot understand it, let alone enter it. There's no way possible. It takes the Spirit of God. So what does the Holy Spirit do to our will? He invades it and he changes it. He changes your will to want Christ. Notice verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is, he is prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, now look at this. It's very interesting. Verse 22, God endured... With much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The verb there is passive, by the way. You say, so what? What does that mean? It's very important. The verb being passive reveals for us that the culprit, the cause in the course of destruction is the sin in the sinner. Alone. He's already set on due course for destruction. It's passive. And the due penalty is destruction by way of cause of the sin in the sinner himself. Okay, now, in verse 23 and 24, the verbs are active, revealing for us that God is the cause of preparing beforehand vessels for glory, both Jew and Gentile, that is true Israel, as we've been studying. Who's the true Israel? God. All those who are in the true Israel, Jesus. He's true Israel. In other words, beloved, you see, No sinner needs divine assistance in order for sin of that sinner to lead him to ultimate destruction. He absolutely needs divine assistance in coming out of that category and being placed in the category of saving grace. All God has to do is pull his hand of restraint away. All God has to do, if this represents the whole world, this congregation, God passes his hand over, who is he obligated to save? not a one of us. Nevertheless, he has predetermined to choose some for his own glory in saving them as he passes over others. All it takes is the passing of his restraint to set people on due course, the end of which is destruction. Paul says every human being Every human vessel is born a sinner, and if all God did was pass over them and in turn poured out his wrath on them, he would indeed be glorified. Just punishment. Justifiably dealing with the human condition. That would be fair. Yet in the process... What if out of that massive group of sinful humanity he, sh- he saves some? He-, he chooses to show his saving grace, actively engaged to-, to change them, to show them mercy that transforms them and in turn transforms their will for him, towards him. This is a defined decision. This does not come by way of human permission, amen, that's the point. Paul is responding to an objection about God's justice in order to direct people towards a greater understanding of his overarching purpose, and that is showing his mercy in Christ, his son, for those that are elect. That's what it is. He says this, church. Church, I want you to think about the gracious category of mercy for which you are a recipient. You want to know why this is so important, divine reprobation? Because you're not there. He's called you out of there. In spite of yourself, he saved you. That's mercy. That's grace. This is what he wants the church to think about. Now, let me make clear. There will not be one single soul in hell that will be crying, I desired Christ, and I wanted to live out that desire by faith, but it was forbidden to me, not one. Okay? You know the gnashing of teeth for those in hell? You know who they're gnashing their teeth at? God. Because they hated him here and they will therefore hate him for all eternity. That's what hell is. You're not separated from God in hell. You're only separated from his mercy and grace in hell only to receive justice and punishment forever, never loosening the chains of hatred towards him. So they're exactly where they want to be. You get it? On the other hand, God doesn't equally reveal his power in grace and mercy to everyone. All right? Look at the words of Jesus if you turn to Matthew 11, or maybe it's up here. I don't remember. I have it. No, I don't have it. Uh, 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 Let's look at it. Yeah, you know what? I wanted you to look at it, Matthew 11. Jesus' home base for his earthly ministry, you remember it was, it was the town of Capernaum? It was his home base, home camp, if you will. Notice verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Naturally, when we look at texts like this, we ask, well, why then weren't his miracles performed there? Why? Verse 22, But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And then you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, which tells us there's greater levels of punishment in hell. The more one knows, the more they're accountable for, obviously, in rejecting God in his plan of salvation. Now, again we ask, why then weren't they done? Why weren't miracles done in Sodom if they would have changed? Why? Why didn't those who saw Christ's mighty works believe? Jesus answers the question in praying to the Father. Notice verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, what? Will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the the Son, what? Chooses to reveal him. Some people will go, oh, hold on, cowboy. (laughs) Verse 20 says, verse 28, he says, come to me all, come to me all. All without exception? No. What does he say there? They misread that and say any and all can come to Jesus without exception. That's not what the scripture says. Not all without exception are enabled to come to him. Here, it's those who are what? Heavy laden. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. See, the person who says, I'm not heavy laden, I'm not laden with sin, I'm a good person, I have my own belief system, I don't need Jesus, the promise is not for them. This is the other side of it. This is how it manifests itself. The reality of divine reprobation, it manifests itself like this. The secrets, the mysteries belong to God. On the surface, we see it come to life. Jesus also said, come to me all you who thirst. Jesus also said, come to me all you who hunger. I'm the bread, I'm the water, so unless you thirst and hunger for him, you can't come. He's only water to the thirsty and bread for the hungry and only savior to certain sinners, not all sinners. It's particular sinners. And he calls those particular sinners to repentance and belief. And they eventually come. You're here as believers, sinners saved by grace. Are you a sinner saved by grace? You say amen. You know you're saved by grace. And and why are you here? Why do you believe? How do you believe? Is it because you're better and smarter than others who refuse him? You would not say that, would you? If you did, you could boast, but you can't boast. You're not brilliant. You're smarter than me, but you're no more brilliant then I, in coming to Christ, we're all fools saved by the grace of God and the intervening work of God the Holy Spirit. That's why you're here. But I desire Jesus. You know why you desire him? Because he changed your desire. At one time, you didn't want to, but he changed your want to. And unless he changes your want to, you can't come. When you realize you're a sinner, you realize that He's holy. And you can't get in without him. He changes your understanding. Every person without exception, including you and me, if it was just up to our own free will choice, would choose not to accept him. Well, I desired to desire him, and I desired him when I desired him because I desired to desire him. As I said earlier, Ephesians 1 is clear. God chose us not because you were holy, but he chose you to make you holy. Before the foundation of the earth. Election is not based on anything found in us. Not in our deeds, not in our work, not in our worth, not in our our faith. Because even that is a gift. It's grace in the beginning, it's grace in the middle, and it's grace in the end. Grace, 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 mercy, 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 through and through, given to you. You didn't merit that. You're not smarter than the next person who refuses that. See, Jesus said, those who have no need of a physician, I didn't come for those who have no need of a physician. I didn't come for those who aren't sick. In other words, they don't think they're sick. I came not to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repentance. Not all sinners realize they're sinners who need to be forgiven and must repent and fully and completely entrust themselves to Christ. They don't realize that. Why? It hasn't been gifted them to realize it. The minister tells a story. He made a hospital visit to this old lady, the most cantankerous, self-righteous, pious person he'd ever met in his life. Morally upright person. You know, always looking down her nose at others who never could reach her little moral platform that she had constructed for herself. And uh, so he goes reluctantly, but he goes because he wants to convey the importance of her repenting and believing and entrusting in Christ, the only one who could save her. And she resisted all the way along, looked at him like he was a nut job. You know, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner. So he spends a few minutes, and he says, I'm going to leave now. She says, well, wait a minute. Aren't you going to read me the Bible or pray for me? He goes, no. (laughs) No, I'm not. Aren't you going to read about God's love to me? He says, no, God doesn't love you. She looked at him like he was Crazy. What do you mean he doesn't love me? Well, the minister said, the Bible says he only loves sinners, that he sent his son to die for sinners, certain sinners, and Jesus came to call those sinners to repentance and belief. Those who aren't sinners, there's nothing here for them. Nothing. Farewell, dear lady. She was so rattled, she started to read the Bible. Three months later, this minister baptized her in the pool. Was she an elect sinner? Saved by grace? Same grace you were saved with? Yeah. In due time, God changed her understanding. He changed her desire. The Holy Spirit enabled her to see herself as Scripture says she is, and that is a sinner separated from a holy God. So when we read whosoever may, and we read all in Scripture, it has to do with those who believe. Thirst for him, hunger for him, not simply want to get out of hell. Amen? So scripture reveals for us as we study this that we're justified in saying that there are some that God does not call. When he calls his elect, in due time, they respond in refuge under his wings. When I was a kid, I, uh, I, didn't grow, I grew up in the city, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I had a cousin who on the other side of my family, his grandparents uh, operated a farm, big farm, huge farm. So I went there one summer for a couple weeks, and many foreign things to me were witnessed. And in one of those things was um, a mother hen just cackling and cackling all day long. (laughs) (laughs) And all of the little chicks just running around doing their own thing, caring nothing about what their mom is saying or clucking or cackling about. But as soon as I saw my cousin's grandpa bring this, this trail of cows... On their way to become steak. (laughs) That's why I love cows and chickens. (laughs) That mother gave out a particular cluck, cackle. And all those little chicks, you know what they did? They took cover under mama's wings. As soon as a shadow passed over, I don't care if it was a storm or a little group of cattle, when she gave out a particular cluck, they came running under her cover. You perhaps heard the gospel over and over again and rejected it. You did not have ears to hear. But one day, the particular call came, and you came a-running, and you said, Here I am, Lord. You didn't do it. it wasn't your brilliance. It was the grace of God in sending the Holy Spirit because He chose you in eternity past, and in due time, the particular effectual call went out. He gave you ears to hear, a heart to understand, and you came running for mercy. That's why. That's it. So this truth undercuts any in all levels of pride, all arrogance, all self-confidence in salvation. So this doctrine is revealed for us in Scripture, as hard as it may be to swallow, to produce in us greater thanksgiving, greater appreciation for all that's been granted us that we don't deserve in Christ. He didn't overlook you. He determined not to. And if he were fair, he would have determined to pass over you as well. He enables the believer. See, what does this doctrine do, beloved? When you know this truth, number one, it produces in us assurance of our salvation. The work he begun, he did in eternity past. He continues it now, and he ain't gonna let you go. At all. He holds you to the end. No one can snatch you out of his hand. It produces assurance of your salvation. Great assurance. That's one of the reasons. But my uncle Bob don't believe. Look, pray for him. What do you do for him? You pray for him. Why do you pray for him? Because you know you can't change him, and he can't change himself. Only God can. That's why you pray for people's salvation. Do you ever pray, Lord? Okay, here. I was talking to one of the ladies in the church last week. He says... She said, every person who has children who don't believe, they might not believe in Calvinistic theology, but on their knees they are. Because when they pray for the souls of their kids, they're not praying, Father, please, please don't violate their will. Please don't violate their will, Father. Please help them to reason within themselves. Do you pray like that? No. You're like, Lord, invade his will. Kick the door in on his life. Make him believe. Cause him to believe. Bring him into the family of grace. Bring him into the church. Lord, that's how you pray. Because deep down, you know this. Hard to understand? No. Hard to swallow? Perhaps. Perhaps. Divine sovereignty generates security and greater hope within the believer. It also produces hope in our evangelistic efforts for those who aren't saved, for those neighbors, for those friends, family members, whomever they may be. It produces greater hope that the power's in the gospel. It's not in me. I'm helpless. I can barely say my full name without stumbling. (laughs) You see, every Lord's Day, beloved, we come together and we're confronted By the word of God. Yes, confronted. We're confronted with divine truth. We're reminded of who we are as we rightly understand and are reminded who he is. This causes us to grow down in humility and up with a greater, grander understanding of who he is and what he does and what he has provided to save our wretched souls. Amen. Grace upon grace. Now, to wrap this up. If you happen to struggle with divine election, you will continue to struggle with it as long as you hold man at the center. You will can struggle with it the rest of your life if you hold man at the center. You will struggle with it if you think that man deserves to be treated graciously. You will struggle with it if you think that man must be uh, um, treated equally. You will struggle with it the rest of your life. But when you read scripture, as it is declared here, you hold God at the center, you see things in proper perspective. He's God, we're not. It's that simple. We praise him for his grace. You hold man at center, it raises the very objections for which Paul is dismantling in Romans 9. Because you won't have any questions outside of this. He's covered them all. So as long as you think that God, the creator, is subject to his creatures, you will struggle with the doctrine. He's not. He owes nobody a thing. When you hold the glory of God at center, with regard to this particular doctrine, it will serve to solidify and assure the assurance that you have in Christ alone. Deep and wide. Now within the realm of our human finiteness, We will struggle in the realm of faith, which is a gift. We embrace this and believe this. And within the realm of glory, you'll no longer have to deal with your humanity and you'll see it as it is. For which we will say for eternity, what? Glory to God. Make no mistake about it. All people without exception worldwide are called to repent and what? Believe. The call goes out to all. Repent and believe. But no person will, no person can repent and believe unless God sends the Holy Spirit to enable them to do so. Okay? So, I close with this. Church, be edified in this. May God the Holy Spirit Talk about solidify something. May he solidify this truth in you that we don't boast in this but we rejoice in this and we proclaim the gospel with confidence because of this and we rest assured in our salvation because of this. Okay? For any who may be sitting here this morning, you've heard the gospel for years. You haven't repented. You don't believe. Perhaps you sit here thinking you can put him off. After all, man, I'm only 19. I got to sow some seeds. Some wily oats. And then maybe I'll just come to faith in Jesus when I'm 30. Let me warn you of something. And let me assure you of something. Although God's patience is great, God's patience is not eternal. Although God's patience is great, his patience is not eternal. When the call goes out to repent and believe. And I'll close with Romans 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness leads to repentance, but you must be the one who repents and believes. That's the command, and with the command comes the joining together of the Holy Spirit that will enable you to repent and believe if indeed He calls you to repent and believe. So the general call goes out repent and believe is the command. And may the grace of God's Holy Spirit grant you the grace today to embrace him and to believe him if you're in this category of unbelief this morning. So may God's word not return empty, but accomplish that for which he has purposed and succeed in the thing for which he sent it, for his glory according to his perfect will and the edification of the church. And together we say, amen. Holy Father, thank you for sovereign grace Thank you for the divinely inspired word for which we hold in our laps this morning. Thank you for your sovereignly chosen, spirit-empowered and transformed church, sinner saved by grace. And thank you, Lord, for those in our lives, Lord, who are not yet saved. We thank you that it's dependent upon you to save them. And we ask on their behalf that you would break and violate their ...resistant will and cause them to willfully desire repentance and belief and faith and trust in you. May we see it, may we see elements of it, may we rejoice in it... ...all the while deepening our faith and our assurance and our own salvation gifted to us... ...and the confidence that we can have in simply proclaiming this truth... ...knowing it is not dependent upon us to transform anyone. We ask these things for the benefit of your church and above all the glory of your name... ...for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.